Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. How old are you, Tap Lines listener? As we record this in June 2023, I'm 34, which means my senior year of college unfolded across 2009 and 2010. And that means I capped off my undergrad career drinking in the high-gravity heyday of original formula for Loco. The infamous energy drink malt liquor hybrid hit university campuses across the country like an absolute freight train in the mid-aughts, delivering fruity flavor, serious ABV, and a kick of caffeine to America's youngest, most inexperienced drinkers. Known as a blackout in a can, It wasn't long before the chaos at Rock caught the attention of college administrators and state attorneys general, many of whom moved to ban it on the fairly obvious grounds that mixing uppers and downers is a recipe for disaster. But it wasn't until federal public health officials escalated their involvement in November 2010 that Four Loco's parent company pulled the drink off the market and reformulated it without the caffeine. You can still buy that drink today at a gas station near you, and via con Diaz to you if you do. When Four Loco Mania reached mainstream fever pitch in 2010, Dr. Joshua Sharfstein was serving as the principal deputy commissioner at the Food and Drug Administration. He joins Taplines today to tell a side of the story that got lost in the sauce for shitheads like me as the chaotic, cash-rich, caffeinated first act of Four Loco came to an unceremonious close. Namely, how the agency gathered the facts, determined its jurisdiction, and weighed its response to this hugely popular, highly volatile new drink. It's Dr. Joshua Sharfstein, it's Four Loco, it's the end of the original formula era, and it's all right here, right now, on Vine Pairs Tap Lines. Dr. Joshua Sharfstein, welcome to Tap Lines. Thanks for having me, Dave. Josh, where are you joining us from today? I'm joining you from Baltimore, Maryland, from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, where I uh, teach in health policy and management. Right on. Thank you again so much for joining us. Listeners, we've got a real treat in front of us here. As I queued up in the intro, uh, you're going to be hearing from uh, someone who was instrumental in sort of taking a close look at Four Loco uh, in the late aughts and right around like November 2010, I think was the pivotal moment. Um, and I think, you know, Josh, the reason that we wanted to have you on tap lines here today is because I think a lot of our listeners, and certainly I am personally, very familiar sort of with the narrative from the consumer side of things, um, yep. but much less so from the public health side of things. And, and I think that's a, a key piece of the puzzle here and something that uh, uh, you have unique vantage to speak on because you were uh, at the Food and Drug Administration um, during those years, uh, and, and in 2010, you were the one who was part of the team that was leading the charge um, to review FDA's uh, sort of role in what this beverage was and 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 it, how it was interacting with the marketplace and, and make some tough decisions about whether it belonged there. And can I just say that, you know, I've in my career um, really supported transparency and regulatory decision making. So I'm happy to be here uh, to talk about it. So people who may have just followed it as consumers maybe can learn a little bit more about what happened. Totally. And we really appreciate it because like I said, I think this is an important piece of the puzzle. So I'm glad to get into it. What, uh, in, in 2010 and, uh, well, I guess let's talk a little bit about your time at FDA. Um, 
how long were you with the the FDA? So I, I started in 2009 uh, with the Obama administration. I was involved in the transition team um, for FDA. And then I was appointed as the acting commissioner and then the principal deputy commissioner once Dr. Hamburg was the commissioner got confirmed by the Senate. That happened, I think, in June, if I'm not mistaken, in 2009. So I was acting commissioner from March to June. And then I was principal deputy commissioner um, from there until I left to become the Maryland Health Secretary um, in uh, 2011, at the beginning of 2011. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the story of uh, caffeinated alcoholic beverages really starts in uh, 2009, um, not 2010 when that kind of big news happened, but 2009 because um, we were getting concerns from different places about the safety of these products, which were really um, starting to become more popular. Sure. So the caffeinated, I'm glad you you know brought up sort of the timeline there. Yeah. November 2010 is, is sort of the pivotal moment where FDA makes its position clear on Four Loco and a handful of other uh, caffeine slash alcohol beverages, um, you know, and voices those concerns. And from there, of course, a lot of sort of consequences flow, um, both, you know, positive and negative, depending on your perspective. Um, My perspective is positive. Of course. I'm going to be transparent about that from the beginning. Uh, As well, as well, you should. And uh, frankly, I think I feel pretty positive about it too. I mean, having come up during that time and drank a bunch of Four loco, the caffeinated stuff myself, I thought it was uh, uh, hot shit when I was, you know, 20, 21 years old. Uh, Mm. I look back on those times Somewhat fondly, but also pretty relieved that those products are not available to me and pretty relieved that nothing terrible happened to me like it did to to some drinkers uh, at that time. So noted on that front and certainly like understand why you feel positively about it. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, I mostly do, too. (laughs) Well, that's good to hear. So let me just (laughs) tell you what it's like to be at the FDA. So much information is coming in from so many different sources and the agency has enormous responsibilities, you know. Most people know the agency for drug reviews or medical device reviews or vaccines. But of course, it's the Food and Drug Administration. So there's a lot of responsibility over food. Meat generally is the USDA, but most other foods and believe it or not, some meats um, are under the jurisdiction of the FDA. And, Mm -hmm. And then we had also added tobacco products. So there was just a lot going on. And there are so many people who want to share information with the FDA and the FDA has to be really thoughtful about how it approaches it. And Mm. um, you want to understand what's good information. There are multiple laws that govern the agency's uh, actions. So it's rare that the agency will get something on a Monday and do something Monday afternoon. (laughs) You know, it's not unheard of, but it's pretty rare. Usually it's going to be a pretty thoughtful process for the agency. And that's why I really say this starts, you know, the story here starts really in 2009 as these concerns start coming in. And we get letters from uh, a bunch of experts mm-hmm. saying um, that they have concerns, and we get letters from a number of state attorney generals. And let me just tell you what the experts say. They say, hey, FDA, there's a product out there, or there's a set of products where people are adding caffeine to alcoholic beverages, and we're seeing three things. We're seeing that people are drinking more when they use these products, and that's just, just one thing, Yep. Um, that they are not perceiving their level of intoxication because the caffeine is sort of revving them up. Typically, people, as they drink, might start to feel tired or, you know, feel the the level of the alcohol. But when you get these high doses of caffeine, they're not feeling it. Sure. And, and we're seeing that they're just as impaired, but they don't perceive it. 
So that's not a great thing. And then third, we're seeing greater consequences. We're seeing car accidents, sexual assaults, um, alcohol poisoning, and we think it's related to this concept of wide awake drunk that people are not perceiving their level of intoxication. Those are pretty serious things. And at the time, if I'm not mistaken, the CDC also had those concerns. And mm. the Centers for Disease Control is like a public health partner agency. Now, we got that information. Um, we didn't run out and take a regulatory action. It sort of gets back to like we get information from a lot of places and Sometimes there are two sides of an issue. First sure. thing we do is we look at, well, what, what's the legal ground that we're on here? And in this case, um, caffeine is considered a food additive. Um, it doesn't come naturally in these alcoholic beverages, right? Four loco does. There's no spring of four loco that has caffeine and everything else in it. You not know, that we've discovered, at least. Yeah. Right? Hopefully not. Um, yeah. <laughs> So someone's got to add the caffeine, and that suddenly engages a law that the FDA enforces that has to do with food additives. Mm -hmm. And a food additive can be generally recognized as safe, or else it has to be approved by the FDA. So, you know, there's another couple legal provisions that didn't apply. So question is, is it generally recognized as safe or not? And now we have experts writing us and saying, it is harmful. It's not just generally recognized as safe, it is right. harmful. We've now, got empirical evidence saying, hey, we're seeing this happen. And these are credible information streams that are coming into the right. FDA. These yeah. are public papers. Yeah. These are, you know, academic researchers. And so we still, you know, so clearly there's a legal basis for FDA involvement and there are con very credible concerns coming in. What we did next was in November 2009, FDA wrote a whole bunch of companies, every company we could find that manufactured these. And we said, we want to know if you think this is generally recognized as safe. And if so, on what basis did you reach that conclusion? So before the FDA would conclude it's not generally recognized as safe and therefore illegal without an approval, um, we asked whether they had evidence that it's generally recognized as safe. And we sent that letter, those letters in November 2009. There was a fair amount of publicity to that, too, mm -hmm. where we expressed some concern. And we said, hey, we've heard different kinds of concerns. We want to know what you think, companies that are making this, you know. Right. And and that's a that was a pretty important step, I think, for people to realize our level of concern and also for the companies to have a fair chance to say, actually, we think it's safe. Yep. Yeah. Right. And that's sort of like the basics of obviously like I, I'm in the journalistic discipline in the public health discipline. Like there are sort of these, the idea is that, okay, you get information. There might be two sides of the story, but now you have to challenge like the baseline assumption that's out in the marketplace. And now it becomes the responsibility of the producers who are profiting off of these products. If they have good rationale, FDA wants to hear them, but that's when you go out and do that fact finding. Like, okay, tell us where, where you're coming from, because right now, what we're where we're coming from is that this stuff sounds pretty bad. Read us right. in on what you're seeing on your end, Mr. Producer. Right, and those yeah. letters explain the legal standard, explain what we were looking for, ask for information. Um, I don't recall we got that much, um, if anything, from the companies, but yeah. I, we might have gotten something, and we we would have read it very carefully. And then we um, took the next step. That's what happened in November 2010. So it took a whole year of review looking at, and, you know, FDA looked at any other data that it could find. Yep. You know, the scientists at FDA to try to make the best decision here. Is there evidence that this is generally recognized as safe? Is this generally recognized as safe? Or, or would it require an application, in which case it's being marketed illegally? And the FDA took the next step. And so to understand what it did is it actually 
didn't order them off the market. Sometimes Understood. there's confusion about that. Tell me FDA, more about that, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah FDA, FDA took the next step, which is called a warning letter. And a warning letter basically says, okay, we think that there's a problem here under the law. And you have, I think, maybe 14 days or something like that to respond. Um, and if, you know, this may precede enforcement action. Right. But this right. itself is not enforcement action of right. the same right. type. And so that's what happened in, in November. And if I recall, we did that and we announced that in a press conference where we had a couple of state attorney generals there. Mm-hmm. We had the CDC explaining its concerns about the products. They were talking about the evidence. And we had the Tobacco and Tax Bureau as well, um, which over, oversaw the products. and Formula and labeling, yeah. Yeah. And we, when we released those warning letters, that's when, uh, if, if I'm recalling correctly, the Tobacco and Tax Bureau said that they didn't think it had the requisite safety assurance to be able to be marketed. I may not be getting the legal uh, standard exactly right. right. And that led them to be withdrawn. Because we were expressing concern at that point, other other laws, other authorities kicked in, and that's what happened. But um, we, uh, in that letter, you know, noted what was in the scientific literature: um, the combined ingestion of caffeine and alcohol may lead to habit hazardous and life threatening situations because caffeine counteracts some, but not all, of alcohol's adverse effects. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of laid out the concerns that we had that shouldn't have been a surprise to companies because we'd written them a year before. And uh, we did think that it was not generally recognized as safe. That standard is really for things that are generally recognized as safe. And I, we couldn't look ourselves in the mirror and say, adding you know large amounts of caffeine to alcohol, given this evidence, uh, was safe. Sure. Josh, I want to, you know, in terms of the FDA's perspective, this story, as you made the point, starts in 2009. You start receiving these information sort of streams from credible sources, state attorneys general, uh, other public health authorities. Um, and that's when you first start looking into it. The story for caffeinated alcoholic, mostly malt liquor, that's what these, you know, these base products are, right? And then they have caffeine added to them. The story in terms of the marketplace starts a little bit earlier. Four Loco hits the market in 2005, I think. Um, it struggles a little bit to get traction at first. They reformulate. They upped the ABV. It starts to, it starts to attract more attention. Um they were kind of a fly-by-night player at the time. This is, I think the, the parent company is called Fusion Labs LLC. They're out of Chicago. They still are around. Um, but at the time, this is like these like th- three guys from Ohio. They're like frat brothers. And, uh, you know, they, they sort of famously, um, you know, as part of their marketing shtick are like, we're just like, we're our target market. Like we want, you know, to drink this stuff. So they're there are fringe players in the beverage alcohol space that do all sorts of stupid stuff um, that the bigger guys don't do. But I think it's important to remember that like in that decade, right around the same time, the biggest players in American beer were also marketing caffeinated alcoholic beverages. Anheuser-Busch had Tilt, I think it was called, and in Molson Miller Coors, I guess it wasn't Molson Coors yet. Miller Coors was marketing something called Sparks, which I drank when I was in college. We used to do, this will horrify you as a public health expert, we used to make these things called Sporties, where we would drink half of a 40 of Old English and then pour a, sp- a 16 ounce of Sparks into that bottle and mix it up. And then it became a sporty, a, a Sparks 40. Uh, they had these products out on the market as well. And like, so we're not just talking about like fringe players. I think Four Loco sort of becomes 
you know, fast forward to 2010 and, and Four Loco is by that point the most prominent caffeinated alcoholic beverage on the market and has this sort of tremendous pop cultural aura around it. But um, the big guys were dabbling in this space as well. That does not validate it at all, of course. That doesn't mean that they're on the right side of things just because AB and, and Miller Coors are. But it's really this like bizarre moment where every player across the, the, the breadth of beverage alcohol producers is looking for, oh man, maybe this is the next move. Maybe caffeinated alcoholic beverages are the next move, you know? Um, and as, as the information streams start to come in and the state attorneys general start to take a look at things, you see the big guys move quickly to reformulate. They have a very low appetite for risk. They're big, diversified CPG companies. They're enormous legal targets for class action lawsuits. Miller Coors right. and AB are like, okay, cool, got it. Like, no more. Uh, Four Loco forges ahead, <laughs> lower to the ground, certainly, and, and much more fly by night. And and uh, if they have a legal department, it's like one guy, maybe from Ohio State Law School or whatever, one of their buddies. Who knows what it is at the time? Mm-hmm. But but companies like that typically are are willing to take more risk. Um, right up until the point when they run into an enforcement mechanism or a, a regulator with enough, you know, sort of authority and credibility that they find it too scary sure. to proceed. Yeah, no, you know? I appreciate what you're saying with the exception of I wouldn't cast dispersions on the Ohio State Law School. No, that's not fair enough. Uh, that's actually not really what I meant. It more meant like yeah. they might have like a buddy who they were like, in other words, like they don't have a better way to phrase it is they don't have a Maybe phalanx. Maybe the best legal advice was not coming in to that. Yes, or it's, right, exactly. It's not a phalanx of corporate lawyers the way uh, uh, Miller Coors or Anheuser-Busch has in their compliance yeah. departments. That's yeah. the way those companies are built. F- at FDA, we're not doing a complex market analysis to kind of understand what's going on. I think we're looking for things that are important to do, though. You know, we don't want to do something that is really a, just of very, very marginal importance when there's so many different things we could be spending our time on. Mm. I think I think in this respect, the um, request from the state attorneys general was pretty significant. Carried a lot of you know, weight. If you get Democrat and Republican attorneys general, it was bipartisan, saying you've got a new product, it's under your jurisdiction, we're very concerned about it, it's growing, we're going to take, you know, we're going to pay more attention to that yeah. um, compared to something where nobody's writing us and, you know, somebody just maybe sees it in a store somewhere. Or a local news story or something. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, all that's happening, like you're describing, and, you know, it may not be getting to the FDA, but it kind of percolates up through the state attorneys general. And then they come in mass to the FDA and say, you know, what are you guys going to do about this? Yeah. And at the same time, we're hearing from scientists that there are these particular risks. Um, and that led us to to actually open uh, this kind of regulatory review that led ultimately to the warning letters. Yep. And, and listener, you should know that when, when Josh, when Dr. Sharfstein says en masse, it really is en masse. In my notes here, I have, I think it was 24 state attorneys general ultimately were, were uh, involved in uh, uh, voicing concern around this, or at least more than that. I think I've here in my notes, I say 24 states and uh, attorneys general initiate investigations into fusion projects, marketing of four logos. So we're talking about, you know, half of the country, the the yeah. top law enforcement officer in almost half of the states are looking hard at this beverage. Yeah. And I, I do remember it was bipartisan. I think there was a Republican attorney general in Iowa, if I'm not mistaken, who was mm-hmm. particularly outspoken. And, you know, we're it's our job to pay attention to that. Yep. It's not our job to do what they say. 
but it's our job to pay attention and do a you know serious review, which is what we did initially. Sure. And in addition to the state attorneys general, obviously that carries a lot of weight. Um, but another thing that was going on at the time, because this was a, a, a relatively affordable you know, bang for buck way to get very drunk very fast. I mean, one of the sort of slang terms for it was a blackout in a can or chaos in a can, you'd hear people call it. Um, Obviously, a nexus for that type of binge drinking in the US happens on college campuses. And so colleges at this time were also individually taking, had started to take action against Four Locos specifically um, you had University of Rhode Island, Central Washington University, Ramapo, uh, Worcester State, you know, all of these schools individually absent, you know, federal regulation or state level regulation um, are already moving to ban it from campus to do education campaigns around that product specifically. So it's not just a matter of, you know, folks in the state house in 24 different you know states who are, are worried about it. It's administrators on the ground at, at universities who are seeing the consequences up close on, you know, you know, Friday nights and Saturday nights and whatever. Um, right. They're seeing, you know, uh, again, that empir- empirical evidence of yeah, what happens. Yeah. can be really horrible consequences. You know, kids can die from alcohol poisoning that yep. happens and yep. not to mention car accidents, sexual assaults, all kinds of things can happen. And colleges, you know, are don't want to see those things happen to their, their students. I think I remember a story and, you know, this was just something that came our way, not something that necessarily played any role in this, but the story about a party at a college where they gave two cans to each kid who showed up and told them that like they had to drink them before they could come in, you know, <laughs> right. and, and, and these cans are big. 24 and ounces. A lot, right? So I think, and maybe you could remind me, but I think each one is like the equivalent of four beers of alcohol. Sure. It's 24 ounces at 11%, I think was the standard ABV. So you're talking about, I mean, you're talking about a, a what you would call a low ABV wine. That's almost a bottle of low ABV wine in one 24 ounce can. Um, yeah. And so they were, they were being asked to drink two. Right. So, and, and then you got all that caffeine and it was a lot of caffeine. Yep. And so- that was just not a good setup, you know, and, and kids were getting sick before they could even get into the party, <laughs> right, you know, right. and, you know, multiply that by multiple places, college campuses. And you could see why, you know, there was, there were real serious concerns justified by actual injuries that mm-hmm. we were looking at at the time. Yeah. And certainly not to, definitely not to downplay what those you know injuries look like. There were a couple uh, fatalities that Again, like I know from your perspective, it's probably a little bit difficult to say exactly if, there, if there's a death, exactly what causes it. But Four Loco is included in um, or involved in uh, uh, several really awful, you know, fatalities right around this time as well. There was a, I think, a cardiac arrest um, of like an 18 year old kid. Like we're just right. looking at, you're hearing about this stuff, and this was these were these. It was being reported at the time. It was a real thing. These weren't just like apocryphal stories. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's sort of impulse to make light of this and, oh, kids are being kids. And um, again, like I was 20 and 21 at the time, and I was certainly partaking in this. I don't want to sort of like look down my nose at this as though I was not, you know, uh, uh, participating. And frankly, I I think I enjoyed it at the time. I think I got a huge kick out of it, both literally and figuratively, I suppose, with the caffeine. Um, But that's not to say that even contemporarily, even as a 21 year old, I was aware of these things at the time. I just didn't, yeah. I didn't care nearly as much. 
Well, um, I mean, that, that's developmentally uh, normal, you know? I mean, <laughs> thank you. you know, I'm a, I'm a pediatrician. You know, adolescents are known for not really caring that much about the consequences of things as much as <laughs> right. people tend to do later, you know? Um, and that that's just, you know, their brain developing in a way. And yep. you know, that's why it's important to have some protections and not to have products that are particularly unsafe, in my view, um, available, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and here there was a very clear law and a very clear risk. And that's why the FDA um, saw this as an action that was in support of public health. Mm-hmm. Josh, by late 2010, um, right around the time, you know, sort of we reached the point where uh, FDA chooses to issue that warning letter that you described earlier. Um, By 2010, Oklahoma, Michigan, Utah, Oregon, New York, and Washington, the states of, uh, have banned Four Loco in one form or another. Um, Mm -hmm. In New York, I think the, the Wholesalers Association, so beer distributors, um, have basically decided it's bad for business um, because they're worried about potential liability coming back on them um, and and decide that they're just not going to do this, which, of course, in the United States, you know, three tier system uh, basically, you know, almost destroys Four Locos route to market in that state. So there's there's already sort of a groundswell of, um, you know, we mentioned the colleges earlier and then you got states banning it. Um I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about how FDA, how you're thinking about this at the time at FDA, why it's important for, you know, you might look at that and say, well, look, like states that think this is a big, significant risk in their population uh, mm-hmm. are already taking action on this. They're aware of the risk and and there's a process for that at the state level. Why in, in your mind at FDA at the time, is it important for FDA to come out um, and, and take Sorry. that action, take that warning letter? Yeah. You know, states um, are responsible for health, really, in in a lot of different ways under the U.S. system. And um, states are often taking all kinds of different actions uh, that they think are appropriate for health. It's easier in some states to do that than others, Mm -hmm. um, based on the legal structure and other um, things uh, that exist in different states. And on almost everything that FDA works on, there can be some related state activity. Um, The FDA's responsibility is for the country. And its goal and mission has to do with um, advancing and protecting public health for the nation. And so we look at it as a a national question. We feel responsible for young people in every state. And so the fact that some states are taking action demonstrates the severity of the situation, but doesn't dissuade us necessarily from doing something that we think is important to Mm -hmm. do. And we have the clear legal authority to do, Mm -hmm. which we did in this case. And so you know, sometimes, you know, FDA will come out before anyone else does things, but that's pretty rare. Usually there's almost always some state that jumped out ahead while FDA is thinking about it. And that's partly because when the states are acting, it's often through the uh, legislative process. The legislative process can be just, you know, a bill that comes up and it just happens to be during the legislative session and it passes and boom, it's in effect. You know, when FDA is doing something, it's going to be very thoughtful because it's got to apply the standards of the law that exists. And that can take a little bit more time. Um, In this case, there's no question that other states would have followed suit, you know, um, at some point. But um, when we had the evidence that we felt necessary to move forward, we we did move forward. And this was not a case of the FDA closing the barn door after the animals had already left. You know, there were definitely some states that were worried but hadn't gotten there, didn't know their path. And we're really looking to FDA for action. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, 
in the end, um, I think we wanted to do, you know, what was right for public health. When you talk about that evidence, you know, obviously you've got a lot of this info coming in from these credible sources. We spoke about that earlier in the episode. In a case like this, or I guess in this specific case, was FDA conducting like trials of the product? Like, was there like a situation? I know a lawmaker at one point in New York, for example, drank a four loco under you know doctor supervision to sort of gauge the effects on his blood pressure on whatever in order to demonstrate how how averse of an effect yeah. it could have. Was FDA conducting like trials like that? Is that no. not part of the purview? Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, we... And obviously, um, it would be possible to invent ideas for trials. Mm-hmm. You know, you could do that. You Almost any question that comes up, you could do more studies. Right. Um, and so this relates a little bit to how the law is structured and the legal burden. You know, the, oftentimes FDA has to make decisions under uncertainty. You know, if you think back about the COVID vaccines, which saved millions of lives uh, around the world and many, many, many lives in the United States, you know, there are some great studies done, fantastic studies. So then people say like, well, how come you don't have five years of safety data? Well, then you'd have to wait five years. Right. You know, <laughs> we know a lot about safety. We know enough that it's very clear that the benefits exceed the risks. And that's right. why the vaccines, you know, were authorized. So in this case, we had a lot of evidence. We didn't have every possible piece of evidence. But we had yep. a lot of evidence. And the standard here, the burden is really on the company. You know, if you're going to add a chemical to food, you have to believe it's safe. Yep. That's how the law is structured. And we gave them the chance to tell us what evidence they had, yep. you know, to justify that. And so, you know, that, that that's pretty much how, how we wound up thinking. Of it. Yeah, it didn't seem necessary to go further when you have all of these stories from credible sources. You you know the effects of caffeine right. and the effects of alcohol. And you have and scientific health. studies, right. multiple <laughs> right. public scientific right. studies, experts telling us. And the standard is, is this generally recognized as safe? Right. Where so like, well, does anyone recognize this as safe? I mean, there wasn't any, you know, was there a credible source saying, wait, 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 this is really safe. You know, right, right. we didn't find one right. serious credible source doing that. Meanwhile, we have all these credible sources saying it's unsafe. It's not right. just not generally recognized as safe. So for the standard that we had and what we thought was appropriate for the public health, we have plenty of evidence to make that decision. I want to I want to ask about one of the things that Four Locos founders said sort of once they find themselves in this situation or once they find themselves in the public eye, they had, they had been in the situation for a while, but once the, once the media starts taking like real note of this and looking at it more closely, one of the defenses that they make, you know, for their product, uh, is I'm just going to quote here from the, a fusion lab statement. Um, Quote, if our products were unsafe, we would not have expected the federal agency responsible for approving alcoholic beverage formulas, the Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, to have approved them. Yet all our product formulas and packaging were reviewed and approved by the TTB before being offered to consumers. Close quote. Now, I cover the the beer industry. I have an appreciation just because I've covered it for this long. I'm aware of the difference in swim lanes. But the rank and file American drinker is not, by and large. Can you elucidate what maybe is missing from that framing of uh, of sort of like federal responsibility there? Why does FDA have entree here, even though TTB did allow Four Loco to market with because they approved the label and they approved the formula? What's what's the distinction right. there? What's the nuance? Okay. And eventually, a TTB pulled that back. Right. When it, you know, in in 2010, 
um, there are different laws, and sometimes there's more than one law that applies. And in this case, there's a food additive law that applies, and that is overseen by by FDA. And mm-hmm. so um, I think TTB took the position that if they don't hear that there's a problem, then they're not, you know, that, that's not their view. They'll look at the, you know, just the, the what's in the application or, or, you know, put make sure the label is accurate. Yeah. But as soon as they heard there's a problem from FDA, they acted. And from the company's perspective, you know, companies have to think about the FDA because that's the law that applies to the safety of their products. And the law says if you're going to do a food additive, it has to be generally recognized as safe or you have to file an application. And if you are going to declare it's generally recognized as safe, you need to have data on hand to support that. And yep. so, you know, that's why we asked them for that data. Um, and so the law applied. So, I mean, the law caught up to them, basically. Sure. Another thing that was put forward both by Four Locos founders and other stakeholders from the supplier side, from the beverage alcohol production side, as well as the American drinking public who is uh, in thrall uh, to mm-hmm. this, to some extent, to this uh, uh, caffeinated alcoholic beverage was, and I'm paraphrasing here, well, I mean, Red Bull vodka, I drink that at the bar, uh, Irish coffee, we've been drinking that for years. What's the difference? Sure. Um People are allowed to mix things. I mean, there's there's no law that governs what foods you can mix together. But when something is packaged and sold and mm. marketed, you know that is um, the the risk is much higher. Um, and you see that by all the concerns that we got from yeah. Yeah. you know the attorneys general, the campuses, and you know the scientists. And so you have a clear law again that says, this is what we do about food additives. Now, people can, you know, mix something in their in their basement and drink it for themselves. But to be able to package it, market it, sell it, you know, that's a food, you know. And if you have a food additive in that food, there's a law that applies to that for a reason. Yep. And I think part of that reason is the harm is magnified tremendously when you can market a complete product. Totally. You're, and that makes total sense, even from the drinker perspective, if, if I think about it for a second, right, and I have, but for people who sort of view that as a compelling argument, I would urge you to think about the idea of like, all right, you want a Red Bull vodka? You need a place to go buy both of those things. You need a place to pour them into a cup. So you need a cup. You need a place to consume that, uh, probably not while you're walking around, right, because there's, there's open container laws and it's not easy to brown bag an open right. cup of beverage. Uh, flip side is, um, I think by the time Four Loco gets pulled in uh, 2010, or w- excuse me, not gets pulled, let me correct myself, uh, they choose to, quote, voluntarily reformulate. Mm-hmm. They say they lose 80,000 points of distribution overnight because they have to take, they've chosen to take their product off the market following FDA's warning letter. 80,000 points of distribution. That's so many places to buy Four Loco that. Uh, uh, you cannot walk into and buy a Red Bull vodka. You can't even walk into every bar and buy a Red Bull vodka. Plenty of them don't market that. Like they don't sell that. There's one other thing, which I think is important, which is there are a lot of surveys that indicate that when people see something for sale, they think that at some level it's okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, and that's true for all kinds of different regulated products. Like if there were a big problem with this, somebody would have taken it off the market. Right, right. Kind of the attitude. And so there's a kind of tacit approval if it's just for sale, you know, and whereas if something's mixed together, people know they're doing it. Right. You know, right. They're adding the things together. They're responsible. Nobody's, you know, saying this is 
you know, a safe product. Yep. That's something that they're doing for themselves rather than um, an implicit, you know, assumption of safety that may come from having a fully packaged product that way. There's no imprimatur of like a, a, a clean, well-lit supermarket where there's stuff on the shelves and uh, gosh, like this is clearly like a legitimate, you know, sort of exactly. marketplace versus, exactly. yeah, if you're at the dive bar, man, like, you know, you're watching someone mix it up in front of you and you know what one is and you know what the other is. And, uh, you know, you're kind of on your own. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's borne out ultimately. I know we'll talk about what happened afterwards, yes. but you know, the, the, um, there was not like, that I'm aware of a surge in Red Bull and vodka related problems, no. you know, um, that was in any way the scale of what was going on. Before. No, I'm not aware of that either. And, you know, this being a beer podcast, some listeners will, will know why. And, and, uh, uh for those that don't, I'll spell it out real quick. Uh, 70 to 80% of beer is sold through grocery. You're talking about a tremendous volume uh, fire hose of uh, a way to get product to market. There are dramatically fewer places to drink on premise in a bar than there are to buy alcoholic beverages at mm. retail and take them home or take them wherever and drink them other. Additionally, there are far fewer liquor stores for foolproof spirits than there are places to buy beer. So all of these things are sort of conspiring to, if not, you know, destroy the market for Red Bull vodka, uh, hinder it in such a way that it can never explode uh, in the way that Four Loco did. Well, I I never, never really appreciated that. So so I I appreciate, appreciate hearing that. And I had the experience, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I had the experience previously to when I worked at FDA, I was the health commissioner of Baltimore. And there was a product that was uh, over-the-counter cough and cold medicines for kids, mm-hmm. all right? Like you would get it for the cold, the cold or cough, runny nose of a little baby. Sure. And those products had never been demonstrated to be safe and there were kids getting into trouble. They were getting multiple doses from different parents and some of them were dying. Not a large number, but some of them and there was no benefit. So those were all unnecessary deaths. Mm-hmm. And we petitioned to take them off the market and they eventually came off the market for kids under age four. And some people were saying, okay, this is what's going to happen. You're going to take off the version that has the dropper, and now parents are going to be giving it by teaspoon. They're going to be giving the adult medicines to kids, you know, and you're going to make things worse because, you know, you wind up with worse substitution when you take a harm, a product that where the benefit-risk ratio isn't that good off the market. It's only going to get worse. Mm. Well, we had evidence about what happened. It did come off the market for under four. Um, there was an evidence of safety and effectiveness for, for those products. And it turned out the calls to poison control dropped dramatically, you know, and I said, you know, at the time, I'm a pediatrician that like, I don't think parents are trying to harm their kids. I think that these products, when they're marketed, parents think they're safe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not dying to give their kids adult medicines. Right. They're looking for safe medicines for their kids. And that I think turned out to be true. Like, I, you know, I wasn't hundred percent sure, but that was my intuition. And with the benefit of time, we could see that actually um, the poisonings went down and ER visits went down for, for poisonings. There are multiple sources of data showing a huge improvement. And I think it's exactly this issue you're talking about. When something's packaged and very available, people think, well, you know, it's easy to get. Right. If there were a problem, somebody would have not let me do this. Right. And, and it is the FDA's job when there are products that really don't make sense 
um, to, to take them off the market when they're, they're really causing a lot more harm than good. I think that's a fantastic segue for what I want to talk about briefly before I let you go. And by the way, thank you so much for your time and candor uh, to this point. But let's turn our attention now, Josh, to uh, what happens in the immediate aftermath of FDA issuing that warning letter to Four Loco. And by the way, listener, it also went to, I think, three or four other companies, uh, seven products in total. You may remember Juice, J-O-O-S-E, uh, was the other big one. It was sort of a Four Loco knockoff. Um, but there were there were a handful of others. So Four Loco was not the only one. It was by far the most prominent. FDA issues the warning letter uh, November 17th, 2010, I believe. Um, at the very same time, concurrently, Four Loco comes out and says they're going to voluntarily uh, uh, reformulate the product. And that's a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You can hear the sarcasm in my voice, listener. They are volunteering to not run into more stiff regulatory attention in the future. The, the writing is on the wall. Um, FDA is moving methodically and it believes like, you know, with the full force of the law behind it. But everyone kind of knows where this is headed. And for uh, Loco, I think I think the Tobacco and Tax Bureau did take an action also, or did announce a different kind of policy that probably hastened that along too. I think you're right. I believe that TTB put their labels under review, which makes it so, again, writing is on the wall there. Like, it's got to happen. So for Lo- Fusion Labs does what it, basically the only move it can do if it wants to stay in business and says, all right, we're reformulating, we're doing this, all that. So we've talked to this point about the public health sort of you know perspective on this and the legal mandate that FDA has and the way you're gathering information and you're representing the expertise in the public health community at that time and and here on the podcast. Mm -hmm. And we really appreciate it. Let me represent the shithead perspective uh, in 2010, the the heavy drinking, heavy user, white male, uh, four loco consumer. I remember a, and, and this is backed up by news reports at the time. This is not just anecdotally. Uh, a absolute like consumer panic, not over, oh my God, we've been drinking this dangerous thing. We're all in trouble. Uh, oh my God, we got to go buy as much caffeinated for loco off the shelves and stockpile it because the feds are taking it from us. Now, I'm sure that's annoying to hear and I'm sure you've heard it before, but what I wanted to ask you about with the context of that uh, uh, story you just told about the cough and cold medicine there's a knock-on effect that you are thinking about, I'm guessing, but I want to hear how you're thinking about it and how are you thinking about it in the case of Four Loco. You know that when FDA takes action, there are going to be marketplace effects. One of them might be that morons like me at 21 or you know whatever decide, well, actually, forget about that. I'm more worried about <laughs> securing access to this product as long as I can in the future, and I'm going to go buy more of it. Yeah. My question to you, Josh, is like, how were you thinking about that potential knock on effect at the time? Because, you know, yeah. you had to not see it too coming. Much. I, not I, too much. I mean, <laughs> not too much. I mean, I think we were warning people and there were all kinds of warnings from CDC about the dangers of the product. Yeah. yeah. You know, now, I take your point. The dangers may not be be penetrating uh, every population. But at the same time, you know, that that's our responsibility. Yeah. And, it's much safer for a product not to be available over the long term, even if people are going to buy a little bit more of it in the short term. And there's only so much in the supply chain. If I recall, I think Four Loco had to convert some of its um, inventory to auto fuel at some point. That they, they couldn't, uh, like, <laughs> no, come on, really? I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah. I'll, in fact, if you don't believe me. Um, oh, I believe I you. I just on my 
my desk. I don't know if you can read this. It says four loco. Let's see if I can hold this up. Yep, there it is. So, listener, we've got four loco converted to auto fuel, uh, a recycling plant in Abingdon, Virginia. Uh, you know, began it, it, turning it, truckloads of four loco and other <laughs> alcohol-laced energy drinks into ethanol after sure. um, federal authorities cracked down on the sale of beverages last year. So not everything turned out to have been consumed. Uh, well, look at that. You know, a nice, sustainable green transition for Four Loko. <laughs> uh, they, that is hilarious, by the way, that you have that on your desk, clearly. Uh, uh, I mean, what a, a little what a souvenir. Yeah, why not, right? Um, at the time, Four Loko, the company... Uh, winds up with about thirty million dollars worth of uh, product that they can't sell because, again, like they've re- they're reformulating TTB right. says no more. They might have sold it as ethanol, so it might have be some of it might have become uh, fuel for uh, for your automobile. That is uh, not a ringing endorsement for something that legal drinking age and underage drinkers had been pouring down their throats for the mm-hmm. last six years, but uh, a happy ending nonetheless because it was converted to some use. Besides uh, blacking out uh, people like me, uh, Doctor Sharfstein, thank you so much for joining us on Tap Lines. We've gone the distance here, uh, and, and I, you know, I just really appreciate you joining to tell this side of the story. I mean, we're now it's 2023. We are 13 years removed, and when we emailed uh, Doctor Sharfstein, uh, he responded almost immediately, and he said, "Yeah, I'm down." and um, you know, I'll, I'm happy to come on and, and the transparency you've shown here, I think is vital. I mean, again, like drinkers at the time were distraught, uh, uh, you know, people, uh, young drinkers were think, feel like the feds were taking some from, but getting this side of the story and, and understanding the way yeah. that you proceeded here is really, I think vital and, and exactly what we're trying to do on tap line. So thank you again so much. I appreciate the evolution of your thinking as you've described it. And I hope some of those people who have, might look back and have been very angry, you might realize that they might be alive today in the most extreme example, but also they may have avoided some tragedies in their lives or some legal jeopardy for themselves because they were not consuming a product that was particularly harmful to them. And so now one of the things about public health is like, you know, nobody really knows if that was them. You know, it's not like uh, we're doing surgery and they know exactly who was saved by this, but I know that there are people out there who their lives are in their trajectory that they wanted. Um, They were not knocked off their life's trajectory by an automobile accident, by an accusation or actual assault that they suffered or committed. That all these things that that, that happened, those things didn't happen. People are able to live their lives, including some of the people who might be listening and going like, you know, this, you know, I, I don't know if I agreed with that. There's, I just hope some people might think it's possible that in an alternate universe, um, their lives would have been much worse because of these products. And that's really what the FDA is about, balancing these things, doing a thorough review, listening to scientists, looking at evidence, and making decisions that hopefully will advance public health. Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside, who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, Editor-in-Chief Joanna Sherino, Managing Editor Tim McCurdy, and Art Director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. 
I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.